Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to another special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. You know, each week I do my best to share some insight, inspiration, and wisdom from my own life that I feel might serve you in some way to live more authentically and more fulfilled. Each week, we have amazing guests from all walks of life. Today is no different. I actually read this man's books uh, uh, a few, quite, quite a few years back. And so when I had the opportunity to have him on Soul Talk, I was like, absolutely. I was thrilled. I, I know you're going to be inspired. Uh, I think your soul is going to uh, definitely ignite from today's conversation. Uh, the man was born in Brooklyn, one of my new favorite places. Educated Amherst, Sorbonne, Yale. This is what I like. The educated through intensive Zen practice. I got some questions about that. Uh, his many best-selling books, uh, interpretations, translations of the Tao Te Ching, uh, Bhagavad Gita. Read those two, which really uh, turned me on to his work and uh, his books, The Gospel of Jesus, The Book of Job, Meetings with the Archangel. Uh, he also co-wrote uh, books with uh, the amazing Byron Katie, who he's married to, Loving What Is, which awesome book, A Thousand Names for Joy. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Soul Talk, Stephen Mitchell. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very glad to be with you. Yeah, awesome to have you on. Uh, I've been a, I don't say a fan, but I've been inspired for quite a few years. And so uh, I know you, uh, you just came out with a new book. Joseph and the Way of Forgiveness, which I am looking forward to hearing about and asking you about. Very curious about that. I grew up, you know, in the church, and so hearing that story, and I'm uh, really curious to to kind of hear your perspective on that. So, folks, check that out. Joseph and the Way of Forgiveness. You know, as we start the interview, Stephen, I, I'm always I'm personally curious myself, and I think the readers might be, especially if they don't know of your work before we deep dive. You know. Born in Brooklyn, so born Yale. I mean, how 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 does it how, how do you get to Zen practice and then writing about uh, translating writing books on sort of wisdom and you know spirituality and soulfulness and perennial wisdom philosophy? I mean, how, how does that happen? I'm just curious from your childhood to that transition and tell me a bit about that that journey yes, in a not. nutshell. It's odd. It's odd that someone from my kind of background would uh, end up as Zen training. And I kind of, I backed into it. Uh, the short version of the story is this, that when I was at, at Yale in graduate school, um, my first girlfriend, whom I had been with for two years, uh, broke it off with me. And the pain in my heart was so intense the the sense of um, 
failure and desperation was so powerful that I didn't know what to do. There was there was nothing I could do but but suffer. And to try to find a way out of it, I looked through the Bible, which was really my only point of reference for spirituality at that point. I knew Christianity and I knew Judaism, which I had grown up in, and knew nothing about Taoism or Buddhism or anything of that sort. So what I found that was helpful to me was the book of Job in the Bible, because I thought that was the point in the Bible that most profoundly addressed the question of human suffering. And when I read it, I read it over and over in the King James translation. And um, it seemed to me that at the end of the book of Job, in a section that's often called The Voice from the Whirlwind, the poet who wrote that book had seen something essential about human suffering and the way out of suffering. And I felt as a as a 22-year-old man, young man in this predicament, that if I could somehow understand what that great poet had understood, then I would be able to deal with the suffering in my heart. So uh, with that with that realization, I proceeded to learn Hebrew so I could get closer to uh, the, the poet who wrote the book of Job. So I learned Hebrew and then I found out that in order to do a really good job, I would have to learn textual scholarship because the book of Job is a bit of a mess in Hebrew. And then after that, I I had to learn comparative ancient Semitic philology. And I won't bore you with the details, but the 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 aftermath of this is that for six years, I studied the book of Job and translated wow. the book of Job. I was translating it into English verse, which had never been done before, because it has this kind of ferocious beauty that you can't really hear unless you hear the, the rhythms of the verse. So that took me six years. And at the end of six years, I woke up one morning realizing that I was no closer to understanding that great poet's insight than I was at the beginning and that I would have to meet someone <clears throat> excuse me who embodied that wisdom in the flesh rather than wow. essentially that I wasn't going to get it from any words on the page however magnificent uh, they were so <clears throat> so I began to study hindi i my intention was to go to india and try to meet a great master and before mm. uh, a month was up i bumped into a zen master in providence rhode island and told him what I was about to do, go to India to, to try to find a teacher. And he said, no, you stay with me. I will teach you. And, um, mm. and a year later, after, uh, after uh, a year of intensive Zen meditation, I found myself in the middle of Job's whirlwind and I, all my questions about suffering were answered. It was, it was bright. It was clear. It was, it was beautiful. It, I mean, everything that I had wished for uh came came through for me at that point and and um and I really made a a a large step forward to to ending all of my suffering so that's that's how I got wow. into the the business of translating and zen practice etc yeah. and yeah. you know when I said de-educating 
myself, uh, it was that everything that I, that I had learned in school uh, had to go out the window in, in the process of this um, huge entrance into what my Zen teacher called the don't know mind, the mind that's completely mm-hmm. open, that doesn't get stuck on anything it thinks it knows. So that's, that's a, a, a brief answer to your question. I love it. I love it. Uh, I'm curious, um, in this sort of the inquiry, you said, well, I mean, you said, oh, I heard you, correct me if I'm wrong, you said all of my questions around sort of the nature of suffering were answered. And so yes. I'm wondering, what, 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 what were your questions and what answers did you find? Because I want to know, and I'm pretty sure the listeners are curious to understand what you found for yourself during that time in terms of the nature of suffering and, you know, maybe how to, how to overcome it, how to move through it, how to deal with the suffering. Cause I think all of us as human beings, we, it's unavoidable experience in life at some moment. And so, uh, tell me about that. Sure. Um, what I came out of this, this kind of experience is, is not all that uncommon for people who are, um, doing uh, intensive meditation, which means, you know, many hours a day. There were many days when I was doing 12 hours a day, and most days I was doing four hours, so nothing less than that. So it's a total immersion, really, that kind of experience. Wow. But they, in turn, they call it, um, there's a name for it, uh, it's Kensho, and it means um, having a even a brief insight into the essential matter. And what I came out of that with was that all my doubts, all my questions simply had disappeared. It's almost like mm. it's not not so much that they were answers as as if the ant I was the answer. That there was there were no questions, there were no doubts. Everything was brilliantly clear at that point. And and I can't tell you the content of it, it's almost as if there was no content, but that I somehow were was born into something else. Um, what I can't tell you is if if people are interested in more specifics, um, the the other great uh, practice that I was initiated into later, many years later was um, Byron Katie's work. Uh, Katie is my wife, mm-hmm. and um, so uh, I I got to, uh, I've gotten to be living very close to her, and she's a, a very brilliant and deep, the most deeply realized person that I've ever met. But her method, if, mm-hmm. if your listeners aren't aware of it, they might want to go to thework.com, which is her website. And her method is a, is a very simple and very powerful process of self-inquiry, which has a lot in common with the Zen practice that I did for so many years. And, and um, through doing that, the kind of self-inquiry that, um, that the work is, uh, anybody can get to that same kind of realization uh, that I had mm. in 1974, and, and that's what I would recommend. Are there any like like just for someone who may be in a moment of they feel as though 
Stephen, that they're suffering and they're suffering and, you know, they're just stuck in a spiral of their own, you know, stuff. And maybe they they feel like, I I, I just can't get out of it. I've I've read the book and I've, you know, and I've taken that course and and, and I know, but but my thoughts and my mind and and is is there something that, that they can, maybe like a first, simple step that like a life yes indeed that person yes indeed um well what you were talking about really is the human condition isn't it um yeah it's um it's uh you know sometimes it gets drastic where people are in great agony even and sometimes it's just Mm. little things during the day that annoy us or that you know um our 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 partner um, chewing in the wrong way or the, the morning headlines or whatever. But, you know, there's a, there's a, um, a series of, of annoyances that we think is part of necessary human existence and we just have to bear with it. But anything, any kind of suffering, anywhere from minor annoyances to great agony um, is a, uh, uh, unnecessary we always have the choice of of not um undergoing it and you asked for one simple insight here's the insight i think that people um would do well to start with that something that uh, an ancient um greek philosopher named epictetus saw that katie saw also and that's embodied in the work and it's this we do not suffer from what happens to us but from the way from the way we react to what happens to us or here's another way of saying it we don't suffer because of what happens to us but because of what we think about what happens to us and if you sit with that insight for a while you'll see how how radical and how powerful it is that what you're suffering, what any kind of pain that you're going through from annoyance to yeah. something greater is because of what you're thinking, not because of the world outside you. And that changes everything. So once you understand that, you can deal, you, ha- you have a way to deal with the suffering because if you if you can question what you're thinking, you can come out the other end from the suffering. And the work is uh, precisely a powerful method of questioning what what you believe is true, which probably isn't or may not be true. So that's the essential insight. Beautiful, beautiful. And so so what I'm hearing is, because I heard you say, and I I really want people to to really make sure they're grasping what you're saying, because it sounds simple, but it, but, you know, so many, so much of humanity is suffering, and so I heard you say that suffering is unnecessary. Was that correct? Yes, it's optional. It's optional, and yes, just, 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 just. I, I, I want to just break that down because there sure. may be folks that say, "Okay, Stephen, you know, you don't understand, man. I, you know, what about those kids?" What about those people in, in, in Africa, you know, and they're just in that situation and just in these atrocious con- conditions and they're suffering or let's say someone who 
you know, uh, maybe there's someone listening. And I'm being a little extreme because I really want, I really want to get people to to kind of open and see how we can get people to to move through whatever they're going through. And, and maybe there's someone listening who they've been, you know, raped and sexually abused and it, it, for years, and it wasn't their fault. They didn't do anything. Just stuff happened, and yeah. they're in a lot of suffering. And and so they might say, well, David, how they, you know, how can you? How can you tell me? I mean, I, I I went through shit that was evil. It was it was it was evil, and and I'm suffering. And yes, yes. What, well, yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's yeah. delicate. It, it's 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 uh it's an, it's an intense moment for someone like that to to hear you saying now suffering yes, is unnecessary. Yes. And even more so, it's optional. I mean, people people mm-hmm. uh, sometimes get very offended by that, and rightly so. But they're not understanding, actually, um, the difference mm-hmm. between pain and suffering. Pain is a given in our human existence. Suffering is always a mental process. So it's possible to feel pain and not be suffering at all, to be in, in a state of great serenity. Right even though you're feeling physical pain, I can attest to this in my own experience. Suffering is always mental. It's a reaction to either pain or to an insult or to abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And I've seen many people, women who've been raped, people who've been tortured, Holocaust survivors, mm-hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera, people whose, whose children have died, who have been in a state of great suffering and who have been brave enough and open-minded enough to question thoughts that are making them suffering when they've been doing the work with Katie or when they've been doing the work on their own because it doesn't take a, a facilitator. You can do this by yourself. And to be brave enough and open enough to question a thought like, um, he ruined my life or she ruined my life yes. Yes. Is, is an amazing thing because people's identities are totally wrapped up with these stories of, of their victimhood and for, for obvious reasons. Um, it's, it's very hard not to feel um, that you're, um, that you're, the principal actor in a story that you believe with all your heart and it's not a nice story either these these stories of of, of great abuse and violations etc but i've seen it work many times uh for people who are open to it and they once they question the stories that they believe in they find a freedom that they uh didn't think was possible and even a kind of forgiveness of the people who who treated them so miserably, so horribly before. And this brings us to um, my new book, Joseph and the Way of Forgiveness, uh, which yes. is a, a, a story of how it's possible for somebody who's been abused in that way, whose, whose brothers have tried to murder him and have wound up selling him into slavery, how it's possible for somebody with that kind of horrible past to to um, step beyond it and into a space of 
love and forgiveness. And it's the one story in the Bible that has this as its theme, uh, yes, a theme of a spiritually, a, a, somebody who, who, who enters a kind of spiritual maturity and is, is, mm-hmm. is uh, large hearted enough to forgive even this kind of thing. So, so, so for, for those yeah, that may not know the, the story, Stephen, yeah, for those that, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's a great segue into, into the book. For those that may not know the story, uh, tell us, you know, break down sure. the story a little bit so that I'll, we can kind of like understand what the story is. And then I want to di- dive into the forgiveness piece. So like, what's the story, the Joseph story? Joseph is the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, these um, great Jewish um, uh, archetypes, the, the great Jewish ancestors, mm. whose stories are in the book of Genesis. And Joseph is um, a very beautiful young man um, and a, an extremely intelligent young man with an intelligence um, far beyond his years. And um, a very spoiled young man, too. He's the apple of his father's eye. And it, it, his father really favors him over all the other, uh, he has uh, 11 brothers, over all the other brothers. And he's, um, he ends up spoiled and arrogant and, and um, really very unkind in his, um, in his arrogance toward his brothers. Um, and so the resentment in them builds up for natural reasons. You, you, know, you don't. Um, sure. Really get to like somebody who walks around and saying, "Well, Daddy loves mm-hmm. me best," you know? uh, and so they they finally end up um, uh, resenting him beyond their limits, and they mm-hmm. uh, finally uh, throw him into a, they 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 decide to murder him, and they throw him into a a pit uh, where they're near where they're pasturing their sheep, and. Uh, Instead of murdering him, they listen to one of to the more one of the more compassionate brothers who says, "Let's not murder him. He's our flesh and blood. Let's sell him into slavery," which they do. So he's taken by some traders and uh, brought uh, to the land of Egypt, where he's sold to one of the great uh, nobles in the court. And after a while, that noble notices not only how beautiful he is, but calls him into uh, his office and, and gets to see how brilliant he is and, and puts him in charge mm-hmm. of things and then, um, eventually gives him more and more responsibilities until he's running everything in the house in, in a brilliant way, making all sorts of uh, improvements and money for this noble. And finally, um, the, the noble's wife falls in love with him or really in lust with him yes. and, and asks him or tells him, she commands him to sleep with her and he won't do it out of loyalty. He, he w- w- would rather cut off an arm than, than do something to offend his master. And finally, when she realizes out of her despair that he'll never, um, he'll never consent to her uh, desire, uh, she accuses him of raping her, and the master throws mm. uh, the master throws him into jail reluctantly. Mm. And then after a f- after two years, uh, 
Pharaoh, the 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 king, the emperor, um, is unhappy with two of his ministers and throws them into jail with Joseph, and they have uh, some very troubling dreams. I, I'm I'm going to make this very brief after mm. after this point. No, I love very it. troubling. Joseph um, interprets them in a very reasonable mm. way. You can see it after the fact. You might not have seen the interpretation before the fact, yes. and they're thrilled. He says that uh, Pharaoh, after three days, will reward one of them and will put the other one to death. And it happens just as he said it would. Wow. So the other one, the other one, after a, a while, uh, tells Pharaoh about this. That there's a, a young. A Hebrew man in prison who interpreted this this dream of mine, and he was absolutely correct. Uh, Pharaoh has just had uh, troubling dreams of his own, and he's he's been asking his dream interpreters to interpret them, and they have come up with some uh, flattering interpretations that he knows uh, are mm. absolute nonsense, and he mm. he's in a pickle. And uh, at this point. The official says to him, well, I remember that there was this young Hebrew man who has a gift for interpreting dreams. And so he says, bring, Pharaoh says, bring this man to court. And he tells Joseph his dreams. Joseph gives an absolutely riveting interpretation. He says um, that the dreams mean that there's going to be a famine in the land for seven years. Hmm. There first are going to be seven years of enormous abundance the the crops will produce more than they ever have before and then there will be seven years of famine and pharaoh says to him um i see that you're not only a, a wonderful dream interpreter but that um you know how to deal with this problem so i'm going to put you in charge of everything in egypt you're going to be my wow. mouth my hands my brain and in fact uh, joseph does uh, brilliantly prepare for the famine by uh, storing grain in the storehouses for the, the seven years. And when the famine comes, mm. they're all prepared. And only mm. in Egypt are they. So in the, in the land of um, Canaan, where mm. Joseph's family still is, his father and his brothers and their families, they undergo <laughs> enormous hardship because of the famine. And they find out that there is food in Egypt, and they send uh, Jacob's uh, Joseph's father sends his brothers down to try to get food, and he recognizes mm. his brothers. They don't recognize him because he's in a state of great splendor in the Egyptian court. Mm. And so, one thing after another happens, and uh, I won't go into the details. But finally, Joseph yes. reveals himself to his brothers and says, uh, "I'm Joseph." whom you sold into slavery. Um, oh, my gosh. And uh, here, here I am again. At, it's 21 years after the fact. And um, and the brothers are terrified because they think he'll, he'll punish them for what they did. But he says, um, I understand that all of this fit into a greater pattern. I love you. I forgive you. Wow. And all is well. And, and that's how the book ends. That's a very brief wow. version of it. So I've wow. taken that's, that that's story. Mm. It's it's Go a ahead. wonderful Go story. Ahead. The great the great novelist, the great novelist Tolstoy, who may be the greatest novelist who ever lived, 
said that the Joseph story is the most beautiful story ever told. Mm. And I agree with him. Um, mm. But what I've done here in Joseph in the Way of Forgiveness is to take a, uh, a powerful story that's uh, in many ways an abbreviated story because the storyteller, uh, the Hebrew storyteller, uh, was extremely concise and was able to... Yeah in one sentence what somebody else might have taken two pages to say. But there are gaps mm. in between sentences mm. and in between passages that he didn't he wasn't interested in filling in, but that it's possible to fill in in a way that makes the story more awesome. understandable and fuller oh. like mm. with the sounds and the sights and um, mm. and the uh, the motivations that weren't in the original story. So that's yeah. what I've done. Yeah. I've added flesh and bones to this story so yeah. that everybody can experience it in, yes. in, in three dimensions, in four dimensions even. Um, yes, like you bring, you're bringing it, bringing it to life. Yeah. yeah. yeah that, and that's what, so, um, that's what readers so far have felt. That it makes it, yeah, it you makes know, it real in a way that it, mm-hmm. even the original Genesis mm-hmm. story didn't necessarily do. Now, now, now you've you've really piqued my curiosity even more. I just want to take a side question and then come back to the forgiveness piece. But you know, sure. so, so obviously, you know, you weren't there at the time, you know. Um, and I'm now really curious. As a, from a creative standpoint, Stephen, as a writer, as a creative person, I mean, you're not there, you read this text, there's, there's, you know, one sentence that could be three pages, a lot of stuff is missing. How, mm-hmm. what, okay, what, what is your creative process to be able to read something and, you know, and, and, and envision what, could be envision the seat site, the story, the and and how do you do that in a way that is is honoring of the text? How do you how, basically? I'm saying, how do you create? What what is your creative process? What do you do to to open yourself also to to the scene, the sight, the colors to be able to bring that to life? I'm, I'm just fascinated now yeah that's a that's a wonderful question and and you know the the central um theme for me always was as you said how do you honor the original text there have been writers who have who have done this kind of thing in a in a somewhat snarky way um uh yes and, and that's not what i was interested in doing um i was in it's it's a a very, for me, a fascinating process of um, honoring the original text and yet being free enough with it to imagine flesh and bones around it. And there's an ancient Jewish art. It's called Midrash. Uh, it's, it's, the meaning of Midrash is more or less a creative expansion of a biblical text. And uh, mm. the ancient Jewish rabbis were um, very bold in what they would do uh, when they couldn't understand um, a story or a line in a story or or the story um, went against their very strict moral 
um, system mm. or the story um, somehow contradicted something else in the Bible. So they would take a line or a paragraph and uh, wildly interpret it, whether, uh, mm. you know, this, this was um, uh, rational or not rational, whatever, they would simply uh, end their uh, confusion by writing another story. And much of this uh, in these ancient rabbinic texts is silly or trivial. Some of it is is very interesting, but what I what I took on wasn't their content, but was their method. So um, in a in a irreverent way, which sometimes may seem like irreverence, but to me it's always reverent. I would enter enter the story. W- in a, in a way that was like my all my meditation practice back in my Zen days, I I would meditate on the story, and sometimes it would be for an hour, or two hours, or three hours, and nothing would be happening with in my mind, but being very patient and waiting for something to happen, and then suddenly, after three hours or after five minutes, I would see an image or I would hear. Uh, a line of story, or I would understand something, and then I would begin to write. Wow. And it was wow. never until I felt a a an authentic connection with hmm. something larger than myself, than my personal self. Hmm. And um, I I have, with all that meditation practice, I have a lot of experience with with um, with patience and a lot of experience with. Uh, recognizing the genuine, so it, it was something that was very familiar to me in the process of writing this book, and um, and so that that was that was how it happened. You know, this this waiting and mm. patience, and then the recognition. That's how yes. I operated. Yeah. I love that the waiting for this this sort of authentic connection to something larger than yourself, and then then beginning the writing process rather than, let's just say, kind of mentally just making stuff up and imagining. I think that that's beautiful to actually feel uh, a deeper impulse. Yeah. You know, I had a great deal of practice with it, especially because Zen meditation is unlike other forms uh, of meditation. The form of Zen that I was practicing is a uh, is called koan practice. You know, some of your listeners uh, might know the word um, it's a, a an existential question. It's a, a a question that you can't solve or answer with your rational mind. So, uh, mm. one of the famous ones in in Zen history is the question, "What is the sound of one hand clapping?" Uh, mm. That's a great example. You just you know it's it it, it boggles your mind. You, you can't answer it with irrational mm-hmm. mind. But people sometimes spend years sitting in meditation for many hours a day holding that question in their mind. It it can be months, it can be years. Um but the the, the practice is of becoming the questioning. And then at a certain point, as I said, months, years, weeks, days later, an answer appears in your mind. Um mm-hmm. and and that's that's uh, the essence of of this kind of Zen practice. So I had uh, a great deal of experience with it, and it was not wow. um, 
unsimilar to practicing with koans. Yeah, I'm just I'm just, I'm just love hearing about your your creative process and and so um, in terms of let's say uh, when you like when you're creatively stuck like you're writing a book like Joseph the Way of Forgiveness I mean you've written so many books and interpreted translated so I, I mean I'm, I'm going to assume maybe I'm wrong, I don't want to assume but let's just say you, you get creatively stuck in moments. Um, what do you what do you do? I mean, I'm hearing okay, wait and sit, but are there ever mm-hmm. moments where you're just waiting and waiting and waiting and and and, and like oh shit, nothing's nothing's happening. And nothing are, happens. Are there any specific, yes? Are there any practices that you do to to unstuck yourself that you could share with with folks listening in? Because there might be, I think, you know, in this conversation, many creatives and screenwriters and musicians, and so there's that question, the unstuck, but also how do you stay it's kind of a separate question but connected how do you stay creatively inspired after all this time writing so many books you know how, how do you keep that fresh and alive inside of you so two questions in one okay so there yeah I, i'm going to break them apart um the first yes. part is um, how do you get unstuck i get unstuck mm. by waiting that is the mm. practice Patience uh-huh. is the practice, and um, when you when you understand that, um, it, the waiting doesn't become anxious. Um, it's a mm. it's a practice of of great serenity, actually, because you've you've been through this kind of waiting a thousand times before, and you've always seen it present you with an answer after you know, as I say, after hours, after years. But in, in my case with writing, it's it's usually after hours or minutes. Um, so so it's a question of uh, feeling comfortable inside the waiting and not being uh, focused on grasping for the answer or grasping for the inspiration. But, but realizing that this has nothing to do with you and your job is to wait with an open mind. And it's something, you know, that sounds like it's really difficult to do, but after you practice it for a while, it becomes very easy to do. So that's my answer to the question of being stuck. As for the freshness of inspiration, in, in my experience, when I fall in love with a consciousness, like the consciousness that, that created the original Joseph story, um, mm. I'm, I'm falling in love really with a part of myself, with the, with the uh, part of myself that, um, that, know, that, that knows not to know, that knows that freshness and creativity are always available to the don't know mind, and that it's all just a question of uh, of patience. That that pushing towards an answer that may not be mature is a self defeating process, and that um, being able to um, to step back and wait inside the don't know mind is the most um, uh, 
active thing that you can do. What seems like total passivity is actually an an action of great um, uh, of great wisdom, and uh, yes. it, it doesn't take courage at that point because you've been through it so many times before. So, so it, things you know, things that come out of love. In my case, love for the consciousness that wrote a particular book, or love for um, my own. Uh, my own self when I'm writing a poem, for example, um, that, that, that always results in something that's um, creative and fresh. Um, and, and it always happens that way for me, however long it might take. Love it. I love it. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, while um, the great poet, while uh, the great poet Wallace Stevens once said something that, I, that might be helpful to people. He said, people, who love the truth are always original. Mm. So, so that's something that's to deep. chew on. That is the yeah. People who love the truth are always original. Powerful statement. Uh, in ter- yeah. So, in terms of Joseph and, and the way of forgiveness, you know, as as you were telling the story, uh, you know, I grew up in the church. Mm-hmm. My father was a minister. And had three hundred churches, so he was always speaking. In what kind of church? And, uh, you know, kind of non-denominational. He started off mm-hmm. as kind Protestant. of old-school Christian. Yeah, Protestant, yeah. Christian. But then he went to India, you know, kind of had his sort of enlightenment awakening in the caves of India and Nepal. So he came back into mm-hmm. a, a very much of a sort of mystical uh, mystical Christianity. And so I grew up in that. And, you know, he would often share these stories. So as you were sharing, I was reminded yeah. of, the nuances of the story of Joseph. And, you know, as you were sharing, I, I was thinking, it's actually quite a radical story. I mean, to, for, for like yes, Joseph indeed, to go through all, all of that stuff and still come out and see his family and, 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 you know, his brothers and be forgiving. I mean, most of us will be like, well, screw you, brother. You know, this is what you did, yeah. you know, to hell with you. And, and so, Especially if you're in a position of having absolute power over them and over anybody else's country. And so so in the writing of this, in terms of forgiveness, I'm wondering what you could share. uh, Like, how do you see, I mean, again, it might seem like an obvious question, but like, what is what is forgiveness, true forgiveness? Because we hear the concept, okay, forgive, forgive, forgive. and, and And then through the story and learnings, uh, how can we really forgive? Because sometimes, you know, we know, okay, I, I, I need to forgive. I need to forgive my husband or I need to forgive my ex or I need to forgive my, 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 my parent, my mother. But yeah. intellectually we get it, but, but, you know, emotionally we're stuck. And so um, what is true forgiveness and, and, and how can sure. we really get to that point of truly embodying it? Um, yes. Uh, that's a an excellent question, and I, I just want to back up a bit before I answer it yeah. to say that one of the one of the things that most fascinated me in writing Joseph in the Way of Forgiveness was to answer another question, which was how did Joseph get from being that arrogant, spoiled brat at the beginning mm. to mm. the man who could forgive this horrible crime at the end? Yes, it, in the in the original. Story, the storyteller 
wasn't interested in that, but I was very interested in that. So I went mm. into that. Uh, I, I elaborated that and talked about what he um, must have understood when he was thrown into the pit and was suffering for those uh, two days uh, when he was when his brothers left him there. And that that it seemed to me was the point at which he was uh, transformed by his understanding of God into a man of wisdom. So so that oh. is a very important chapter in the book. There is more than one chapter. What, what did he, can you share, like, what, 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 you, what you observed? Because that's a really great question. How did he go from being the, the, the arrogant to, you know, forgiving and, and being that kind of person? What, what, was, what was his transformation? Yes. What, what yes, did he um, t- t- tell us about and that? And then we'll go back to the then we'll go back to that yes, question. Yes, and we go back to forgiveness. So, so you know, in brief, what what he understands when he's in the pit, naked and and in great physical pain and 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 soiled with his mm-hmm. own urine and feces and and confused about why his brothers did this, he suddenly has an insight into what in him caused his brothers to act with such hatred toward him. At first, he's in the the state where most of us would be, probably all of us would be, is, you know, how could they do this to me? How could they be so cruel? And then he has suddenly this insight of, was it something I did? And that opens him up into an experience of, understanding his own arrogance and unkindness to his brother. And that is more painful to him than the physical pain by, by thousands of degrees. He's, he's mortified. He's humiliated. He's deeply hurt by his own uh, sins, you could say, by his own mistake, kindness to his brother. He takes this in in the deepest possible way and sees that if he hadn't himself treated them the way he did, there would never have been this reaction on their part, and, and that it's completely understandable how they could have felt and acted so murderously toward him. And then he has an even larger insight into God. He he starts praying, and he 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 prays the only thing he can pray at this point after understanding his own part in it is may your will be done and then he understands that even that is an arrogant thing to say because god's will always is done it it can't mm-hmm. not be done it's 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 crazy to feel anything else so praying may your will be done is is an arrogant insertion of himself into something that is actually reality. And once he understands Mm. this, he realizes that in a larger sense, it's not his brothers who threw him into the pit. It's God who threw him into the pit. It's not his brothers who will decide whether he lives or dies. It's God who will decide whether he lives or dies. And in fact, everything in our life is the will of God. If it happens, it should happen. This is a this is um, an amazing insight that that may sound um, that may sound too difficult to bear for some people, but if you actually yeah. open yourself to it, it can it can be a great freedom. 
So that that's mm. there's more to this, but it's in the book, and and that's Beautiful. basically the essence. Of it. So you know, I want know, to go to that. that Stephen, before before we before we go to that question, because now you you just sure you know I think you opened up something really really deep. Everything in our life is the will of God, and and you know I mean I feel the rea- reality of that statement in my life, but that that's that's a that's a deep statement, and so. I would love for you before we jump into forgiveness to, to just for us to sit with, you know, you know, how how much in your experience, in your life, in your studies, just in just in, in, in just everything you've been through, do you feel then I mean obviously this it sounds like this the statement leans towards us an answer, but how much is, is, is really of life is, is is destined, is in our control? Because you know, in, in Personal development, self-help, uh, some spiritual, you know, uh, realms. We, people talk about you're in control of your reality. You create, you you create your life, you know, and you're mm-hmm. you're you're, the, you're in control of your life. And and so, how much, how much is for you? How much free will do we have um, in terms of our life and what we do? And how much is just destined by? The will of God. I mean, it, or, or is what you're saying? It's all the will of God, and we don't really have any any control. It's just happening. Because some people might yeah, say, think... "Well, then I'm just going to sit there, Stephen, and just do nothing." And what, what, I don't want people to get apathetic. And so, uh, just, just no, speak about not... that, and then let's dive into forgiveness. Yes, sure. Um, in my experience, there's only the illusion of control. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, in fact, it's all um, unfolding as the will of God. And I don't, I don't think of the word "destined" as a useful word here, because um, mm-hmm. before the fact, it's not destined. After the fact, it is destined. In other words, um, what what has happened had to have happened <laughs> because it did happen. But what will mm-hmm. happen is totally open. There's no destiny involved there's infinite possibilities this is this is a little hard for some people to to kind of get into their minds um but if if you sit with it um it it will become clearer um the 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 way the bhagavad-gita says it is i am not the doer and understanding i am not the doer is Mm -hmm. When you really take it in on the deepest level, it's a huge joyful freedom. There's no um, apathy involved in it. It's um, it's a kind of uh, co-creation of letting go uh, completely into uh, the will of God. If 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 you use God language, um, you you finally understand that. Your your will is God's will, and vice versa. So you become entirely in harmony with reality. And so I want to I want to give you a little bit of different perspective on this, but it's really the same thing. Yes. Katie, my wife, who um, is brilliant in many ways, and 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 has um, expressed this in in very uh, useful ways, says says it in a kind of uh, um, a different way. She says that um, when you argue with reality, yeah. you suffer. 
When you don't you argue with right. reality, you don't suffer. So arguing with reality means thinking that something that happened shouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. When you realize that what happened should have happened, then you're in harmony with reality. And this, again, takes some contemplating to understand. It, for some people, again, it may feel offensive. Uh, you know, my my child died, that should have happened. Or, you know, um, uh, my business partner cheated me out of a million dollars, that should have happened. How can mm-hmm. you say that? That's ridiculous. But um, but if you actually question question that um, and, and through the questions of the work, you can come to an understanding of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I love it. Beautiful. Let's delve into forgiveness. You know, the forgiveness. Uh, so forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to quote Katie again um, because she said something that I think is the most, um, uh, the clearest thing that's ever been said about forgiveness. She says, um, that uh, forgiveness means realizing that what you thought happened didn't. I'll say it again. Forgiveness means realizing that what you thought happened didn't. So it's not it's not saying uh, that that something that happened to you didn't happen, but that something happened in a way that you couldn't possibly have understood at the time and that when you're holding the story, when you're holding on to the story of your own victimhood, you're holding on to something that actually didn't happen in that way. And you can understand the way that it, that it really did happen by going into the questioning of your, of your story. And uh, once you question it, it unravels and you can see something else. You can see, uh, something much more, much kinder, because reality is always kinder than the stories we superpose onto it. And I, I have a story that makes this uh, a lot clearer than it might seem at least at this point to your to your listeners. So this this is a story that happened to a friend of a friend of ours. He was somebody who lived uh, in great misery, and his story was. My mother ruined my life. He thought of her as, as somebody who was never, never there for him, cold, um, uncaring, et cetera, et cetera. And whatever he went through in his 20s and 30s, um, business failures, failures in relationships, he would always blame on his mother because um, mm. his mother ruined his life and, and everything was colored by that. He, he felt a total victim. And then he discovered Buddhism in his early 40s. And um, Buddhism has a practice, a a very effective practice for many people, um, called metta practice, loving-kindness practice. And in this practice, in this practice, um, you send love, first of all, to the people you love and, and who love you. And then you you broaden it out in the next step to people who are indifferent, maybe people you've never met. And when you're able to do that, well, you take another step of broadening it out to people who have hurt you or who um, you've had problems with in the past or people who hate you. And then in a final broadening out, you might, if you're brave enough, uh, 
broaden it out to people like Hitler and Stalin, you know, absolute mm-hmm. monsters, but who are still human. Um, and and this man, uh, his biggest challenge in this practice was broadening it out to his mother. So he was able finally, after great effort, to send her love and to really mean it, to be sincere in this practice. And yes. it, it, it lightened things up for him and it, it changed his relationship with, with his mother and he was he felt less judgmental and kinder and friendlier toward her and it, it really did help him. But there was a limit because he was still sending love to the person who ruined his life and it came from a kind of superior eye down to a inferior you, the mother, uh, who had acted so unkindly, and mm. and then after a few years, he he discovered the work, and so he he question he began to question that thought. My mother ruined my life. Is it true? Mm. These I'm going to go into the four questions of the work briefly to to show your listeners mm. what he understood. So is it true? And then he said, Yes, of course it's true. I I know this. I lived it. And the second question is, your mother ruined your life. Can you absolutely know that it's true? And here, here he went in, he, he, he got, he, he stopped, he, he waited. He, he said to himself, can I absolutely know that it's true that my mother ruined my life? And he went into himself and, and really asked the question. And he, his answer was no, uh, I think so, but I can't absolutely know that she ruined his life. Mm. Then he went to the third question. How do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? I ruined my, my mother ruined my life. And he saw, he, he became uh, judgmental, defensive. He disliked his mother. He, he became resentful, toxically so, resentful. He, he blamed her for all his failures in life, et cetera, et cetera. So this was the effect of believing one thought. I'll go back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show about reality. It can't, reality can't cause you suffering. Only your thoughts about reality can cause your suffering. So here he understood that, that everything he was feeling, this, this toxic resentment, this dislike of his mother, et cetera, was because of his thoughts about what she did, not about what she actually did. And then the fourth question of the work, who would you be without that thought? And he saw her. Um, he saw her as the uh, the um, difficult, burdened human being she was. And he saw that without the thought, my mother ruined my life. He could be more open to her. He could be a better listener, better son. He wouldn't be carrying all that baggages. And and all of this. What happened if he, for example, if he didn't even have the ability to think that thought? And then yeah. part of the work is what Katie calls the turnarounds, which is finding opposites of what you originally thought. So the turnaround to my mother ruined my life is mm-hmm. my mother didn't ruin my life. And he, part of the work is to find three examples, genuine examples of how that turnaround might be true. And he couldn't mm-hmm. find a single example of how how it was true. My mother didn't ruin my life, and he he was very impatient, and he couldn't do this. He was ready to throw the whole thing out the window, but he persevered. And after a couple of days of trying, he discovered 
one memory that he had not thought of before. It was his sixth birthday when his mother gave him a birthday party, and it was a wonderful party. And she was very generous with him at this point. And uh, it was something he did. He he appreciated as a six-year-old. And after he found that one example, he could found, find a second and a third and a fourth. And he eventually realized that he had been cherry-picking his memories to support right. the story of the mother who ruined his life. And mm-hmm. the whole relationship changed at that point. He was no longer sending love to the woman who ruined his life, but he was actually... Mm-hmm naturally, spontaneously loving this very difficult but um, but available woman who was his mother. So that's an example mm-hmm. of how questioning your story about yeah. reality can change everything and how uh, an example of, of Katie's statement, forgiveness is realizing that what you thought what you thought happened didn't. didn't so happen. Like yeah, questioning, self inquiry is very important here yeah. for people who want yes. to get to into a position of such uh, spiritual openness that they can forgive somebody, not from a point of superiority, but from a point of total equality. Total equality, yeah, that's so important. I, lo- I love that definition. Forgiveness means realizing that what you thought, key word, underli- underlying thought happened. Happened, uh, didn't. didn't. Yeah, the yeah. thought. Because sometimes it's a very yeah, liberating. Well, that, that, yeah, yeah. We, we people say, well, that's so I, I, yeah, so I give that's the, what we thought about it, and and so that that's powerful. Our perception, our story, our mean, the meaning we give to that event, that experience. Mm. Yes, and even you know, even people who have undergone rapes and torture, as I said before. Yeah. Uh, who are brave enough to question their stories find yes. freedom through that kind of questioning. And I have given to Joseph, uh, to my, my character Joseph in this book, um, the the kind of um, penetrating realization that that I myself have had in my life and that Katie has had, et cetera, so that um, people can really see embodied in this mm. in this wonderful character from the Bible. Um, uh, a mind that is fully in harmony with the way things are, and that's how forgiveness happens. The more in harmony with reality we are, the more easily we're able to forgive. Yeah, you're making me think of folks like Mandela now too, Stephen. You know, in oh, that's such a wonderful years, example, you know, and the whole yeah, truth and reconciliation process in South Africa. Um, was a, a, a superb example of how on a on a social level even forgiveness is possible even for people who have been um treated in, in the most horrible um cruel ways uh that that is an, such an excellent example and i appreciate yeah. your bringing it up yeah folks as you're listening to this powerful i mean this conversation is is powerful and Stephen, you're putting in such Simple language, but the concept of shifting, taking responsibility uh, for your experience and the reality that we are creating uh, and the meanings we're giving and the stories and the interpretations we're giving events can can truly, I think, uh, revolutionize our life and our relationships and, and move us into a deeper state of forgiveness. If people doubt 
that it's possible to forgive after horrendous experiences like the ones they may have lived through, um, they would do well to to look up what happened with the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa. Yeah. And if it's possible for these thousands of people to, of simple people, you know, uneducated people who, who haven't mm. done a spiritual practice necessarily, but if it's possible for these people to forgive, then it's possible for you to forgive. Mm. Beautiful. You know, I'm curious. This was a question I was not going to ask, but I just feel like, I mean, I'm personally curious. I think folks might be curious. I didn't know that, you know, Katie, Byron Kate was, you were married to her. I just knew you from your books. And so uh, when I found out, uh, I was interviewing you, I said, well, he's married to, you know, Byron Katie. That's cool. And, but, but as you're sharing, I really get your, your, your deep, yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. I had the opportunity even to meet her. It must, I just first came to the U.S. and, uh, this was before her books and, and, and all of that stuff. And maybe it was, you know, 19, 18, 19 years ago and sat in El Segundo uh, in, a, in a little room and she had these piercing oh, eyes. Yeah. And yeah, it was be- beautiful, beautiful experience. But, I, but I'm curious now, almost like it's a kind of a relationship question because, you know, you've referenced her a few times and it's clear that the, the love and, you know, respect you have for your wife and, and it's, it's, it's beautiful to feel. And so my curiosity, maybe listeners, is it's almost like what does it take to be, and you've referenced her as one of the most, I don't know, I don't know if you said enlightened or just clear human beings you've met in your life, which is a huge, you know, that's a big statement. And so what is it like uh, as a man, as a human being to be in relationship with someone like that, but also for the listeners, um, what have you learned? What can you share in terms of what it takes to create uh, a mm, fulfilling relationship, an enlightened relationship, a relationship that is that is you know awake and conscious and present? What are some keys that you could? kind of share from your experience of being in a relationship with, with Katie? Well, that's a big question, and um, uh, I'd love to answer it fully, but I, I, I can't, obviously, in this short yes. space of time. Yes. I, do, I do have a, a long chapter about life with Katie in a, um, a memoir that I haven't yet published, but it will come out in a couple of years, and it's, uh, to me, it's a very fascinating subject, life with Katie, life with a a Buddha, um, and um, but here's what I can say. Another, I'll, I'll quote Katie again. She says, "It takes only one person to have a happy marriage." Uh, that's 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 a tongue twister for the mind. Um, so when she was uh, previously married to, uh, after she had her experience of waking up to reality in 1986, she was married to somebody. Uh, she had been married and was at the time married to somebody who was very fearful and um, didn't understand what had happened to her and and wanted the woman who was uh, suffering terribly back because that's what he was familiar with and he would he yeah. would uh, stomp around the house yelling where where have you where have you put her i want my wife back uh, and, and would um, w- would threatened to divorce her when she um, 
when she went away to do a workshop. A very difficult man, in other words. And throughout, she was in bliss. She was uh, Mm. in in her state of absolute um, love of reality and of uh, constant peace and joy that never made a dent in it. And so between married to a very difficult, uh, judgmental man and with me now married to somebody who uh, adores her and everything she does and everything she is and never causes her a problem, Mm. it was equal for her. She was as happy with Mm. that man as she is with me. And I think that's an amazing lesson in her statement. It takes only one to have a happy marriage. She never expected anything of Paul, her ex-husband. She never expects anything of me. So, you know, nothing can alter that relationship with reality that she has. She's absolutely not dependent on anything outside because for her, there is no outside. So so that's one thing I say. What is it like to be married? What is it like to be married to a Buddha? It's very nice. It's living a life without ever a problem. It's living a life of constant adoration at her feet, always. And always um, seeing myself in the mirror of her mind as someone uh, surpassingly beautiful and and wise and kind and it's seeing my own face is more beautiful than I could ever have imagined it before um, and that is such an empowering experience um, she's somebody who never has a moment of anger or or fear or sadness and what I you know it, it provided me with a uh, understanding even even more vivid than what I had understood in my Zen years. And I was living and practicing every every day of the week, of every week of the year with a a wonderful um, Zen master who was uh, enlightened himself up to a point. But what I didn't understand at that point was that uh, what I thought the masters were talking about was that... uh, there would be, for example, a, a blip of anger or sadness in them, and they would see it come and see it go as everything else comes and goes. It was impermanent, and they would still be in there patient and steady and watch it come and watch it go and not get disturbed by it. And and that's that was true up to a point. But what I found in Katie is that a person of that level of realization never has a moment of sadness or anger or fear arise in the first place. Or if it did arise, it would immediately be met by the questioning that she lived inside so that the moment of, say, annoyance would would rise to the surface of consciousness. The questioning, is it true, would arise at the same exact moment and the uh, upset or the annoyance would unravel instantly in the light of that questioning so it would never get to uh, to the point of being acted out on because it was gone as soon as it appeared 
so that was a, an even deeper level of um, of peace than I had been aware of before that it was possible for a human being to attain. So it was a great, great education for me to know her. I love it. I love it. I mean, man, I'm, you know, I think we could have a whole conversation on relationship, dynamic, love, and maybe one of these days we'll, we'll have to bring you back for sure. Uh, Stephen, I just, you know, I have, I have really loved this conversation with you, man. I mean, oh, I'm I so just glad. your heart and your soul. I mean, I've loved it. I'm sure everyone listening in is just loving this conversation. You know, based on, I mean, you shared a lot, but as we begin wrapping, uh, if there were just, you know, based on your experience, if there were, let's say, the three most important life lessons that you feel you've learned that if you could pass this on to the next generation, I mean, it might be covering some things you shared, but if you were to distill that wisdom, three most important life lessons to pass on to the next generation, to evolve the next generation the most, uh, what, what, what could you say? What would you say? Well, the next I, generation? I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give them three uh, life lessons. What I would do is say, go to thework.com and see mm-hmm. if you have an affinity for self-inquiry of that sort, because that's the, the, mm-hmm. the greatest uh, help that I could give people, providing them with um, this method that they can use themselves without a teacher. It's like, you know, the old uh, saying about um, you, can, you can give somebody a fish, and that's a, a kind thing to do, but if you teach them to fish, it's a much kinder thing. Mm-hmm. So, so rather than you know uh, giving any lessons which people people may or may not be able to take into themselves, this is a way that they can enter the mind of the Buddha, the mind of Katie, the mind that will always uh, lead them to the right um, solution in their lives. Uh, it's it's the kindest possible thing that I could do. Beautiful, beautiful. We'll 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 put that link on on the show notes as well. And if people want to find out about, uh, I know you have uh, this new book out, folks, Joseph and the Way of Forgiveness. I know that's available on Amazon. I want to invite everyone to check out Stephen's work and Joseph and the Way of Forgiveness, an amazing book. And he's written so many uh, amazing books, but I'm I'm looking forward to delving into this one. And so I highly recommend that. Or at independent independent bookstores. At independent bookstores, people... People sh- people might not want to go automatically to Amazon, but might want to support their independent yes. bookstore. In any case, if they go to my website, uh, which is uh, stephenmitchellbooks.com, they'll have um, the options of ordering it on Amazon or at a, a number of other uh, online uh, awesome. bookstores. Awesome. Yeah. So that's stephenmitchellbooks.com. We will post both links on the show notes. Uh, Stephen, once again, thank, thank you. you for tuning in. Folks, I told you this was going to be a, a really special interview. Shoot me an email, Coop Blackson at coopblackson.com. I want to know your key insights, takeaways, and uh, what you receive from this beautiful conversation with uh, the man himself, Stephen Mitchell, author of Joseph and the Way of Forgiveness. I will catch you. Definitely also, folks, download this episode, share it with your friends, and uh, let's connect in the next episode of Soul Talk. Much love, everyone.
If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.